A Canadian journalist infiltrates an international network of violent extremists. They don't care who they maim or hurt or kill. White supremacists who want to spark a race war and incite the collapse of society. Embrace the chaos! And from its ashes, a new world shall rise to victory, white man! I'm Michelle Shepard, and I'll take you inside this movement to learn where it came from and where it's headed next. White Hot Hate, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. I'm here because I think it's important for parents to have a say. I'm here today because queer education saves lives. Trans rights are human rights! My son, my choice! In the aftermath of nationwide protests, unpacking the meaning of parental rights. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... Is your MP a landlord? They have a financial incentive to allow things to get worse. How politicians invested in real estate might affect housing policies. Not at home on the Hill. They have been described in our interviews as a nightmare. Serving the country from a toxic workplace. And the little guys who took on Wall Street. It was really incredible what they did. It was a really smart move. The GameStop rally gets a big screen treatment with dumb money. All today on Day 6. The Dumber Than a Bag of Hedge Funds edition. This week, two groups of protesters faced off in cities across the country. One side, calling itself the One Million March for Children, was demonstrating against the inclusion of sexual orientation and gender identity education in schools. Many expressed support for policies passed in New Brunswick and Saskatchewan, where parents have to be notified if their kids are using different names or pronouns at school. They often framed the issue as one of parents' rights. Whatever is being taught to our kids, parents should have a right to know about that. And I would hope that uh, both sides can get together and recognize that parents should be the final arbiters of what your children are learning in the classroom. On the other side, people rallied in support of LGBTQ inclusive education, arguing it's about keeping kids safe, healthy and happy. I'm here today because queer education saves lives. And if I had had the kind of education that can be provided today when I was a kid, it would have saved a world of hurt, depression, anxiety, and we need to make sure we have that care. At the core of the argument is the question of how educators weigh parental rights against student agency and safety. Jen Gilbert is a professor of education at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. She focuses on gender, sexuality, and LGBTQ issues in education. Good morning, Jen. Welcome to Day 6. Thanks, Brett, for having me. When people frame this as a parents' rights issue, you hear people saying, I should know what's going on in my kid's life at school, and I should have a say in that. Do you see the appeal in that argument? Yeah, I see the appeal. I think we want parents to be really involved in their children's lives at school. I don't think what we're talking about precludes that possibility. But kids go to school and they're exposed to ideas and conversations that they don't have in their family. And it sometimes they, they need space to figure out who they are in the world, what they want to be. And I think that that's what people are advocating for. So then what is the flaw in that argument? What's the flaw in saying 
this is about me wanting to know what's going on with my child. I was watching the news coverage of the protests on Wednesday because I'm out of the country. And I saw these parents who were protesting with their children and their children were holding signs, I belong to my parents. And I think that's a different idea than saying parents should be involved in their children's education. Children don't belong to their parents. I think parents have a responsibility towards their children. And I think that's the distinction that matters. Children aren't their parents' property. When you think about kids who are in school who are exploring their gender and sexuality, it can be scary to talk to their parents about it. And sometimes they need to talk to other people first. I think ideally, of course, schools would support young people in having that conversation with their parents. But it has to follow the child's timeline, not the parent's timeline, because we're talking about the children's right, not the parent's right. The framing of the conversation around the concept of parental rights seems to me to have been quite successful when you look at the numbers of people who are out protesting in support of those, of those rights. What's the history behind that language, safeguarding children, parental rights? Where does it come from? It's a really common framing. If we go back to earlier controversies around gender and sexuality in schools, all the way back to the 70s and 80s with attacks on gay and lesbian teachers, we see this framing around parental rights there as well. I think that the experience of living through COVID and lockdowns has really emboldened and amplified this framing. There's a real relationship, I think, between the ways in which parents protested against vaccine mandates, lockdowns, and then kind of came out of the lockdown with a renewed energy and are taking it now to these policies around gender and sexuality. Then when there are protests around the rubric of parental rights, who's included in in that and who's not? Right. That's a really important question. Who are the parents of the parental rights movement? And which parents' interests does that movement represent? I think a, a very narrow band of parents. And in fact, you know, we talk a lot about how the parental rights movement is violating the rights of children, but they're also, I think, violating the rights of other parents to send their children to schools that will be welcoming and inclusive. You know, I, I think about LGBTQ plus parents who who deserve schools that will treat their their families as valid, important, and vital, just as the parental rights movement is asking schools to do. When we look at the movement, it's not just the protesters in the streets who are using this language. It's been adopted now by provincial leaders and conservative governments. So I'm imagining that their polling must be telling them that this is a winning issue for them. How broad is the support for the parental rights movement right now? I think it's really disheartening that politicians are latching on to this language of parental rights. I think it's very divisive and it, it alienates a great majority of parents. I think there's something really difficult about the rhetoric of parental rights. If you're a young person and you're, you're, you're listening to adults around you having a debate about whether you should exist, whether you're too young to know yourself, 
whether, you know, there's an implicit idea that being trans or being LGBTQ is somehow a mistake. And I think for adults as well, LGBTQ adults are listening to this debate and thinking, I'm being framed as a potential groomer or predator, and somehow my interest and care for the young people in my life is always suspect. And I think that is a real problem. Why do you think these ideas are gaining traction now? You mentioned the pandemic earlier, and I guess some militancy that, that might have grown up around around lockdowns and around mask mandates. But but what do you think is happening in the society on a broader level that's creating this this need for these confrontations now? You know, young people are exploring their gender and sexuality in directions that we, I don't think, anticipated. Mm-hmm. You know, that they're sort of shifting our whole understanding of what it means to be a gendered or sexual person and moving in in ways that I think can feel quite scary and feel quite um, threatening in some way to the adults. But we really need to follow young people. We can't try and pull them back into our way of organizing our worlds. You know, I think that they're asking some really fundamental questions about what it means to love ourselves and each other. And in part, I think the parental rights movement is a a kind of a backlash against, in fact, these great and beautiful experiments around gender and sexuality that this generation is asking us to take seriously. But following young people into that space, when you haven't explored that space yourself, or when that wasn't part of your upbringing, I think that's a a lot to ask of some parents. And there seems to be an assumption among some parents who are worried about what's going on in their kids' schools, that it can't be the kids who are driving these conversations about gender identity, that there must be (laughs) someone pushing them into this, or or, you know, we hear the the term indoctrination a lot. What do you think is going on there? I think we... We have to ask, like, what do these parents, what do adults think that gender is, that it is so fragile, that it can be changed by a TikTok video or a conversation in class? I mean, we're much more complicated people than that. And I think adults really need to trust that adolescence is a time of experimentation anyway, Schools at their best are places where we can explore the various people we might become. And we need to hold that space open for young people. You mentioned watching the the demonstrations this week, and we saw thousands of people on both sides of the streets arguing. How do you think it affected the LGBTQ kids that they were arguing about? I, I was kind of, honestly, like, it was kind of inspiring. I mean, when you look at the protests, the counter protesters supporting queer and trans kids vastly outnumbered the protesters. I think that's really inspiring. And I think it shows the really broad support for LGBTQ kids in school. There is that other side, of course, you know, it's always strange to find yourself the subject of a protest. But I hope that when they saw all of those people coming out to protect them, to protect their right to be who they are in schools, that they also felt the love and optimism that I did. Jen Gilbert, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much. Jen Gilbert is a professor of education at the University of Toronto's Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. 
I think what you're looking at is not just a deep freeze, it's an open declaration of diplomatic war, uh, and the next few days and weeks could see more of that. The tensions between Canada and India continue to rise after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said there were credible allegations of Indian involvement in the assassination of Sikh independence activist Hardeep Singh Nidger. Nidger was killed in Surrey, B.C. in June. India has denied the allegation. Canada and India have both expelled senior diplomats. India has suspended visa services in Canada, citing security risks. It has also accused Canada of harboring terrorists. The High Commission of Canada says it is temporarily adjusting its staff presence in India over threats on social media platforms. And... The Canadian-founded video platform Rumble is refusing to demonetize comedian Russell Brand in the wake of sexual assault allegations leveled against him. Four women have accused Brand of sexual assault, including one who says she was 16 at the time. Since those allegations came out, London's Metropolitan Police Force said it has received a report of an additional sexual assault. A British parliamentary committee has asked several social media platforms to stop Brand from being able to make money off his online content while the allegations are being investigated. YouTube has complied with that request. Rumble, which has gained currency among right-wing websites, has refused. Rumble characterized the request as extremely disturbing and said it would not join a cancel culture mob. Still to come on Day 6, Dumb Money tells the story of how amateur investors short-squeeze the hedge funds. It's a fun movie, but did the GameStop frenzy change the markets? I'm Brent Bambury. There's a reason Goliath wins all the time. Um, I always say we should have, could have moved faster. Absolutely. There's always more to do. Should have, could have, would have. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau this week speaking to frontburners Jamie Poisson about his government's track record on housing. Last week, the Liberals announced several new measures to address housing affordability. But Trudeau was still on the defensive. If we hadn't got the federal government back into the business of housing, then everything would be much worse right now. Trudeau happens to know a thing or two about the business of housing because he's a real estate investor himself. And as it turns out, so are a lot of politicians. According to a new report, cabinet ministers, federal MPs, and provincial representatives are all a lot more likely to be landlords than the average Canadian. Davida Mastracci is the author of that report. He's a journalist with The Maple. Davida, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thanks for having me. You've crunched the numbers, federally and provincially. I want to start with the federal party leaders, arguably some of the most powerful people in Canada. How many of the federal leaders have real estate investments? So four of the five major party leaders have real estate investments. Um, That's all parties except for the bloc. And just so we're clear, when we talk about investments, if someone owns a home that they live in or if they have a family cottage, does that count? It would not count unless they rent out part of it or rent it out for part of the year. If they use it exclusively for their own personal use, then it doesn't count. Does that mean a tenant is writing a check to their landlord, Justin Trudeau? Uh, In Trudeau's case, no, but um, some of the leaders do have uh, investments in rental properties that they're making income from. Which ones would those be? 
So Pierre Polyev, he owns a rental property in Ottawa, um, and he's also the joint owner of a private real estate investment company in Calgary. Jagmeet Singh's wife is a landlord who owns a rental property in Burnaby, BC, um, and that's that was relatively recent. Actually, that was just a couple months ago. And then Elizabeth May's spouse rents out a suite within his uh, principal residence, and May is a guarantor on that mortgage for the residence. And what about Mr. Trudeau? What's his situation? Um, so Trudeau's is a bit different. Um, his uh, disclosure lists him as having a significant interest in a numbered corporation based in Montreal um, that engages in real estate development, among a couple other things. And he also has a controlling interest of another numbered corp in Montreal that has vacant land. So four out of the five federal leaders have these properties. But what about MPs in general? How many MPs, broadly speaking, are currently invested in housing? So according to the data that I crunched back in June, 38% of MPs do, which comes out to 128 MPs. And how does that compare to the Canadian population? According to data from 2020 from StatCan, which is the most recent that I could find, um, only 8% of Canadians declared rental income on their taxes. So it's a pretty significant difference. It sure is. 38% of our federal politicians are in that business, only 8% of Canadians. So a little bit of imbalance there. Your report doesn't just look at federal politicians, though. You are also documenting now real estate investments provincially. Does the pattern that you just illustrated for us hold true for provincial representatives as well? It's still disproportionate relative to the Canadian population. There is some variety between provinces. So, for example, Quebec, the percentage is 21, whereas PEI, it's 56. But in each of the provinces, it's still disproportionate to the public within that province. It's interesting that the political class is, is so heavily invested in, in real estate. But is it just possible that they have more money to invest than the average citizen? And that real estate is a good place to put money if you can afford to. It's a popular asset. And if that is the case, then why does it matter that Canadian politicians are following the advice of, of investing in real estate? They can vote on and make policy and laws, so they need to be held to a higher standard than the average Canadian, even the average Canadian that makes, you know, a similar income level as them. You know, like we're in a housing crisis and most people are suffering due to it, but some are profiting. And the people that are profiting have a vested material interest in seeing that crisis continue. So when you have elected officials that fit into that category, and they're also the ones that can vote on and make laws and policy, then you have a problem because they have a financial incentive to allow things to get worse. That doesn't mean that their investments are going to be the only factor in determining how they vote, but it can definitely be one factor. Politicians have disclosed these investments to the federal commissioner for conflicts of interest, and that's how you were able to access a lot of the data. Does the fact that politicians are compelled to disclose these properties signal that there is an understanding at that level that these investments could constitute a conflict of interest when it came to creating policy? So yes and no. Um, yes, because the governments have acknowledged that this is uh, one way that there could be a conflict of interest. No, because the disclosure reports contain a whole bunch of different things. So they weren't created solely for the purpose of uh, real estate investments or anything like that. 
but those investments are obviously included as part of it. Politicians from all parties are certainly promising to deal with housing right now. Is there any evidence to suggest that personal real estate investments are affecting policy in this country? Can you tie ownership to certain positions that politicians have taken? Um, I mean, on an individual level, I'm not sure if you can. I mean, people can speculate and say, oh, maybe that MP voted this way because of their real estate investment. But when you look at it at a more broad level and realize that landlords are disproportionately represented among our political class, it offers one explanation for why things are the way they are. People tend to do things in their material interest. And if our political class is made up of a significant number of landlords that will do things in their interest, it's not a surprise that there is a lack of real action on the issue among all of the parties. Because while the levels of landlords do vary among the parties, there are members of each party, and of course, like as I mentioned earlier, at the very top, that do benefit from the way things are now. So we could require politicians to divest themselves of their rental properties when they take office. I don't know how realistic that would be. But what do you think could be done to, to address this imbalance in ownership among the political class versus uh, everybody else? Yeah, I mean, forcing them to divest it, I would support, but I agree with you that the governments in charge are not going to do something like that. Uh, the fact that so many MPs are landlords is just a symptom of something broader, right? That's just one manifestation of it. So the answer to that, I guess, goes well beyond the scope of sort of what I'm looking at here. Though, though on the micro level, when, when policy is being made, and, and certainly there's, there's, there's a call for, for more housing policy right now, individuals can now, using your data, decide what they want to ask their representatives about. And I'm just curious about how you're hoping Canadians will use the data. Exactly. Yeah, that was one of the hopes that I had with this data. I sort of just put it out, made it more easily accessible and digestible for people. And I hope people will take that information and be more critical of their MPs or their provincial representatives when they see them voting on specific things or not doing certain things, because it obviously does put them on a defensive and I think makes them feel more inclined to do something or at least to have to explain themselves. And before this data was made more publicly accessible, they didn't have to do that. Davida Mastracci, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Davida Mastracci is the opinion editor for The Maple. His report on Canadian politicians' real estate holdings was published earlier this week. You can find the database at landlordmps.ca. Feel the system is broken. The whole idea of the stock market is if you're smart and maybe with a little luck you can make your fortune. Certainly not anymore. There's no hope for the little guy. Maybe now there is. Remember back in January of 2021 when a bunch of Redditors brought a retail video game store back from the brink of bankruptcy and made a little or in some cases a lot of cash along the way. 
Maybe this will jog your memory. It was all led by a guy named Roaring Kitty. Yo, what up, everybody? Roaring Kitty here. I'm going to pick a stock and talk about why I think it's interesting. And that stock is GameStop. I love this guy. In real life, that guy is known as Keith Gill. And in 2021, he led one of the craziest rides on Wall Street. January of 2021 was a weird time. We were at home because of the pandemic. We were bored. Many of us were glued to our devices. And trading was made easy by mobile apps. Maybe they've been trading for a little bit, but they got real into it around April (laughs) when everything was shut down. And here in the U.S. too, we got stimulus checks. So a lot of people dump their money into there. This is sort of like a perfect storm right now. That's Emily Stewart, a senior correspondent with Vox covering business and economics. We spoke to her about the whole GameStop saga in January of 2021. That's when Keith Gill saw that GameStop shares were super cheap and that the store was about to go bankrupt. So he went on Reddit, talked about GameStop, and suddenly a $3 stock went up to $500. And it looked like the little guy was sticking it to the man. For a little while, anyway. Now that story is told in the movie Dumb Money, which just wrapped a tiff and opens in theaters on Thursday. And Emily Stewart is back to talk about the movie and how it lines up with the real-life fallout from GameStop. Emily, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. This story is a little bit complicated for people who aren't versed in market and market activity, but in the simplest terms, can you recap the GameStop saga for us? Tell us what happened in 2021. Sure. So at the beginning of 2021, basically a group of retail traders, which are basically individual investors, uh, started to pile into GameStop, which is, you know, that's a, a mall retailer. And they started to push this the price up and up and up. Um, and there were also short sellers in that stock. And what a short seller is, is basically somebody who's invest or is betting against that stock, right? So as the price went up, went up, they started to do a short squeeze, which essentially means if you're betting that the price will go down, this becomes worse and worse and worse for you. And essentially you kind of have to participate in moving the stock price up. And the, and the long and short of it is some big hedge funds were shorting the stock, were betting against it, lost quite a bit of money, the big one being Melvin Capital, um, a hedge fund based here in the U.S. And uh, at least some of these Reddit traders won, at least for a while. A lot of people, if you were in early on the stock, made a lot of money. To be clear, not everyone made money. But but you can see why Hollywood would be interested in this kind of story where the little guy takes on the institutional big guy and appears to win. Who is the dumb money in this film? Well, I mean, the dumb money is supposed to be, you know, that's what Wall Street will kind of call retail investors, right? Like okay. what Wall Street investors will always tell you is that they kind of prefer to be trading against uh, a retail guys because they're not, you know, they're just kind of noise. Uh, but they're supposed to be the dumb money. I think the joke, at least in this movie, is supposed to be that that David wound up being smarter than Goliath. Of course, reality is a little bit different uh, than than Hollywood portrayal. But you were there the first time this happened in real life. What did you think as you watched the events unfold on film? I mean, it was, it was, I mean, the film was really exciting. It really kind of called back to that moment. You know, I remember being in my little apartment in Brooklyn in January, 2021 and thinking, you know, my goodness, this is so exciting. As a reporter, it was exciting. I remember joking, like my apartment's a mess and I can tell I'm excited and stressed because that's what (laughs) happens. Um, And the movie really does follow that. You know, it kind of follows the feeling of that roller coaster of thinking, well, this can't keep happening. Well, this can't, well, it can't keep going up. It can't keep going up. Um, And then of course, like one thing that happens in the film 
that also happened in real life is that Robinhood, the trading app, did briefly shut down trading on GameStop, which is still very controversial, even though it's hard to know exactly. You know, they It looks like what they did was above board, basically. Um, but it was very exciting. And the movie does a nice job of capturing that. Uh, but but even the sense that, that, that you don't know for sure if it was above board that Robin Hood put the stop on trade, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. But it's a complicated story. Is the film relatable and digestible? Will it be easy for audiences who aren't versed in trading to understand? You know, I, it is easy to understand. They do a really nice job um, of channeling kind of the basics of what happening, what happened. You know, it's not as, I, I, you know, the, the Big Short is a nice comparison about, about the financial crisis. Um, mm-hmm. And the Big Short was more complicated. This kind of brushes over a little bit more. You know, the thing I will say for this, and this is kind of a thing that I've written online, is that it's important to remember, like, this is a Hollywood version of what happened. This is not reality, right? Most retail right, traders right. lose money. Well, yeah, and it's interesting that you're ambivalent. You seem to be ambivalent about it. When you walked away from the screening of Dumb Money, how did you feel? You know, it's funny. I think for the first five minutes, I thought, oh my God, this was so neat and what a great movie. And I, I remember how fun it was. And then kind of coming back down to reality. And, and I don't want to say this movie is irresponsible. I don't think a bunch of people are going to go out and open Robin Hood accounts tomorrow after seeing it. Um but I think that there is, like, I, I, I tend to take this stuff, like, quite seriously. I think it's important to remind people that that retail trading is risky, that this was kind of just a big casino mad rush. There are plenty of hedge funds that made money on the GameStop saga. Um, there really mm-hmm. hasn't been much regulation or, to come out of it. And to be clear, I'm not even sure that we do want any regulation or legislation to come out of it. You know, the market's risky. This is an example of something that was, like, fun, I don't know that it means that much. And again, like I just feel like I always have to say investing is risky. Most the more you trade, the likelier you are to lose. And this movie doesn't exactly channel that. I don't want to spoil the end for people, but I'll just say it's a little bit more triumphant than than reality. The protagonist of the film is Keith Gill, who is also known as Roaring Kitty. And Roaring Kitty led the effort to, to save GameStop. And then, and then this, this enormous ride happened because of, of, of how he uh, was able to, to rally other people. What happened to Keith Gill in real life? That's a good question. Uh, we really don't know. I think that's actually kind of huh. the most fascinating part of the story. We don't know. I've talked to the writers of the film and some of the people behind it, and they've said, you know, we we tried to get a hold of them. There's also a book that this is based on. Um, that author couldn't get a hold of him, I think, talking to his brother. Um, yeah, we really don't know. He really has, has disappeared from the limelight and a, apparently doesn't want to come back. You know, there's there's a giant movie out, you know, about him, basically, and he hasn't wanted to be involved. That's that's pretty fascinating. So so in real life, not everyone came away a winner. Who are the biggest losers in this story? I mean, the big loser here, I think, is Gabe Plotkin, um, who is the founder of Melvin Capital, the hedge fund that had a big short bet against uh, against GameStop. I think beyond that, it's pretty complicated. I th- I think we should assume that Keith Gill was a winner. Um, I, I at least hope he made money on this. He kind of claimed to never want to sell GameStop. You have to hope that he did um, because mm-hmm. GameStop stock has kind of come back to earth. Beyond that, yeah. it's it's tough to know. You know, a lot of people talk about about different players, but you know, there are plenty of hedge funds that made money. People talk about market makers, which are kind of these entities like Citadel Securities that, that process the Robinhood trades, and, and they probably made money on all of the activity, right? 
Um, but it's not a simple story. And I think it's important to remember too, there are a lot of people that probably bought into GameStop when it was $200, $300, $400 a share, and it's nowhere near that now. Uh, so it's complicated. And, and this was really an aberration in terms of trading. We haven't seen anything like this since, and probably we may never. But did it change anything? Did, did the fact that, that these retail traders, these retail investors were able to, to make their mark against the hedge funds change the way that Wall Street is set up or the way that it operates? I mean, in short, no. I think that if you talk to people in institutional you know, firms or, or hedge funds, they'll say, listen, like we do pay closer attention to retail. We take a look at Reddit to see what's going on. Uh, but I did talk to one hedge funder about this movie, just kind of seeing his read. And, and he said, you know, dumb money's still dumb. We'd much rather be trading against retail uh, than not. And so, was, you know, we look at it, but like, we still think we win. And like, you know, they had the element of surprise at that one point. And, and will they have it again? At least not in the same way. I, I don't know. Dumb money is still dumb. It's not really David defeats Goliath then, is it? It's, I mean, there's a reason, you know, I don't, (laughs) there's a reason Goliath wins all the time. You know, David, I mean, I don't know. I, Wall Street is, there's a reason Wall Street wins all the time. I don't, I don't, and like not to, I don't, obviously I don't want to undercut the, the retail traders or the Davids here. It was really incredible what they did. It was a really smart move. Something like this could happen again, but you know, there's a reason that Wall Street wins all the time. And it's because they have a lot of advantages that, that one event isn't going to change. Emily Stewart, thank you for talking to us. Thank you. Emily Stewart is a senior correspondent with Vox. Dumb Money opened in theaters on Thursday. Still to come on Day 6, they went to Ottawa to serve their country as MPs. What they found was an unwelcoming workplace. The working conditions are arduous, Amina is an activist during the Arab Spring. Her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, attracts readers from around the world. When she's mysteriously abducted, her followers mobilize, desperate to save her. What they find shocks them. I'm Samira Moyedin, the host of Gay Girl Gone, a new six-part series from CBC. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We are on public radio stations across the United States. You may listen on demand with the CBC Listen app, and we're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. I spent $200 at one store, but all the other stores we walked into, I didn't buy anything. So when you spread it out, that was good. You saved money. I saved money. Yeah, girl math. Oh, sure. I guess. If you say so, Girl Math is making the rounds on TikTok, helping big spenders justify their financial decisions with logic like that one. And that's not all that's out there. Have you heard of Girl Dinner? This is my meal. I call this Girl Dinner. Nothing makes you realize how bad your addiction to Girl Dinner is until you get in a relationship. And then the guy is like, um, what are we having for dinner? Like, what are we eating? Where are we going? What are we making? And you're like, uh, cheese and crackers. Math and dinner are just two of the themes to have had the word girl slapped next to them and turned into a viral trend on TikTok. 
There's hot girl walks. There's feral girl summers. There are rat girl summers. There's strawberry girls, cherry girls, vanilla girls, tomato girls, coconut girls, coastal cowgirls, downtown girls, girl bossing, girly girls. (laughs) There's that girl, clean girl, soft girls, visco girls, e-girls. There's every type of girl you could possibly imagine. In case you're thinking all of those categories can't possibly define something real, oftentimes they do. Those things just happen to be very specific. So I think the first real major girl trend from TikTok, I remember, was in 2019, a girl made a video kind of making fun of the stereotype of of the visco girl. And these kind of girls were the rich girl who pretends that she's like a hippie. These markers of leftism with also some some like quieter status symbols of like the bourgeoisie. That's Rebecca Jennings. She's a senior correspondent at Vox who covers internet culture. She says the creators of these TikTok trends have clued into something publishers and production houses figured out a long time ago. The idea of girl being a really marketable term is not new at all. It was about 10 years ago in the publishing industry when two books specifically, Gone Girl and The Girl on the Train, became kind of surprise runaway bestsellers. Within the next few years, we got so many more books with girl in the title. Around that same time, we also got so many TV shows and other kind of trends that also had girls in the title. We had literally the show girls. We had new girl, two broke girls, good girls revolts. Oh, and we had like the movies for the girl with the dragon tattoo, which is obviously a book before. You were tortured by self-doubt and fear, and it is not pleasant to be around. It was interesting because Pretty much in all cases, the girls in the title that they were referring to were women. They were not girls. And I think what all of these people, when they they use the word girl prominently, when what they really mean is a woman, is that girlhood has so much more available to it than the idea of womanhood. Because as uh, the essayist Robin Wasserman wrote in 2016 when we were having this conversation, was, you know, the term womanhood makes us think about being a wife and a mother. And culturally, those things are far less prized than the idea of being a young girl with the entire world available to her. And I think a really good example of this is to think about the term woman dinner as opposed to girl dinner, which is the term that went viral on TikTok this year. It's like when you think of woman dinner, you're thinking of this tired wife and mother who's already fed her husband and kids and she's like trying to clean up the kitchen and eating whatever's left over. When you think of girl dinner, it's like fun. Like, (laughs) this is fun. This summer, we've had, you know, the highest grossing movie of the year, Barbie, and the highest grossing musical tour, uh, Taylor Swift's Eras Tour. These are women in their 30s. They're, they're women, but all of them explore these themes of everlasting girlhood because, you know, Taylor Swift doesn't have a kid. She's not married. She can still use the term girl, and we sort of know what, know what she means by it. She means that she's, she's still on this sort of, like, self- discovery journey that girls get to be on whereas i think women in the in the cultural imagination don't so many women are hungry for this kind of content around girlhood because so many more of us are delaying or choosing not to participate in these markers of traditional womanhood like like marriage and having children but it's also you know giving way to this generation of of women who are like well 
I can do so much now. Like, what do I do? It's, it's a really, it's really scary choice. There's a lot of kind of internet discourse about whether calling ourselves girls is infantilizing or that it, you know, it, it demeans women by, you know, erasing the term or erasing the idea that being a woman is, is something you should aspire to. But I think a lot of times these, these words are used very playfully on the internet and they're not meant to be really, really serious, even though the kind of underlying search for oneself is serious and it is very meaningful to us. I think that the version of girlhood that we see on in on the internet right now is kind of a repackaged version of the kind that we've seen in the media. And that's why, you know, Barbie and the Eras Tour and, and Girl Dinner are also are usually focused on, you know, thin, attractive white women with with means and and opportunities and options available to them. Individual creators online are really good marketers, you know, in the social media age, all of us are kind of our own publishers. And so we have to think like marketing teams and also editors and also like performers and, and writers and whatever. We're thinking like the marketing teams do at major studios or, or at public publishing houses. And that's why this summer we've had so many instances of these kind of micro trends and a lot of people identify with it. Rebecca Jennings is a senior correspondent at Vox covering internet culture. My downfall was the press. I could never figure out how to deal with the press. I made the mistake so many times assuming that they were my friends, and they're not. They're in business. Their business is to get sound bites, their business is to get stories, and that would have been the part that I didn't get guidance on. That's former Conservative MP Lisa Raitt talking about her time in the House of Commons. She and more than two dozen other former MPs spoke to the Humans of the House podcast about what it was like working on Parliament Hill and the toll the job took on their lives. And not all their memories of the place are great. Like, why aren't there normal rules about, you know, like not keeping people up like all night for days on ends with votes that were, you know, to make a point? That's former Liberal MP Catherine McKenna. I thought that was unconscionable and in fact, actually dangerous for people's health. We have people, you know, that are older and, or have other underlying conditions. And I hated it because I was exhausted. Look, I'm a hardcore person. I just didn't see the point. And I just thought it was an extremely strange work environment. This week, MPs from all across the country went back to Ottawa to start a new session of Parliament. Canadians expect them to be hard at work on pressing issues like housing and the rising cost of food. But Sabrina Dellen says there's a good reason to care about their work environment too. She's the executive director of the Samara Centre for Democracy and the host of the Humans of the House podcast. Sabrina, welcome to Day 6. Hi, Brent. Why should Canadians care about the workplace culture of their members of parliament? Well, Canadians need to understand the working conditions of their MPs because it affects them. The working conditions of members of parliament are arduous, they're grueling, they have been described in our interviews as 
a nightmare. And that matters because the working conditions of MPs shape our social conditions. If we want our representatives representing what we need, <laughs> following what they need to do for us, we need them to have working conditions that enable them to be productive and safe. When you think about political life at the federal level, it seems pretty glamorous. What, but, but a nightmare, describing it as a nightmare, that's very strong language. What did former MPs tell you about what it's like walking into Parliament Hill for the first time when they have no political experience in federal politics? So we spoke to over two dozen former MPs. We conducted in-depth interviews with them, and it wasn't so much about what they were saying, but how they were saying it, mm. because they're not in the role anymore. So they can be really candid and reflective. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't uncommon, actually, in our conversations for them to become emotional. And certainly, the grandeur of the space, the significance, the weight of public service was uh, an important aspect of what they shared in the conversations. But they also talked about a, a culture that was challenging to navigate. There were a lot of unwritten rules. And what they painted for us was at times a fairly bleak picture where they talk about the life being uh, a grind and there being some pretty serious uh, health impacts to this. And it's understood that there is a high rate of divorce uh, amongst politicians in Canada as well. And what we're calling for here is not a softening of the role. This is an important job. It's a serious job and it should be a demanding one. But that doesn't mean that it should be exempt from the basics in terms of feeling uh, safe at work, ensuring that you don't have to deal with harassment from your colleagues or uh, extensive abuse online, uh, that there should be up-to-date HR policies around uh, sexual harassment. What we're talking about here is working conditions that put the health of our democracy at risk because it can prevent um, us from attracting and retaining the best and the brightest leaders that we need in a moment where we're facing very dire challenges as a country. I'm curious about harassment. Harassment from their colleagues, you said. What does that harassment look like? Is it equal between men and women? You know, it's an area that is not heavily studied or measured. These are still relatively early days in terms of unpacking this culture and piercing through a sense of exceptionalism that has uh, kept things the same in a certain way. And we're talking about evolving this institution to better serve the public interest in one of our conversations, we spoke with Cheryl Hardcastle, who uh, was a former uh, NDP MP, and she shared an anecdote about a, um, a senior male MP shouting at a younger woman uh, cabinet minister, telling her to sit down and that she's in over her head and just sit down. And of course, this is question period theater, which um, listeners might appreciate is where we get a lot of the clips that we see online and it's, you know, meant to be theatrical and performative, but it sends a really important signal about conduct and de decorum and professionalism. And there are also other instances that are, that are unseen. There are a lot of complicated power dynamics within this space mm -hmm. and they need to be, uh, assessed and examined. Then, then what about the policies for the workplace? Is there actually a formal HR on Parliament Hill? It's complicated because the the way that things are set up, who is the boss, who is in charge, and so our analogy in terms of workplace conditions, who is the employer, it's not a perfect one. But what we're trying to do is find a nuanced way to cut through this sense of exceptionalism 
within uh, the role of being an MP and really get at what the lived experience is so that we can make it a higher quality one and make it a more productive one. A call for something really basic like more management training. MPs come from all sorts of professional backgrounds before they land in this role. Many have never hired and managed teams before. If we think about uh, in other sectors, how that would be perceived and regarded, it's a major risk, especially in terms of resources. And so uh, that would be something to put into place that would make a big difference. All of our workplaces were altered by the pandemic and some of those impacts have been long lasting. Are there any ways in which Parliament Hill is different as a workplace post pandemic? Yeah, one of the things that has changed is that hybrid proceedings have be, have continued. Uh, so that started during the pandemic. There was some uncertainty about whether that would uh, that would stay, and now it has. And at the Samara Center, we think that's a really important signal of a work environment that's striving to be more contemporary and responsive to a changing world of work right now. We're all navigating this. And this is related to representation and inclusion as well. You know, we are asking MPs to travel to Ottawa on a regular basis. There are not direct flights to the city from Whitehorse, for instance. And mm -hmm. uh, we have multiple time zones in our country. So having the option of hybridity is an important one. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be in-person time. Of course, that's needed for collaboration and effective problem solving. But this use of technology in this way does send an important signal. And then the other technology, of course, is social media, which has wildly changed how politicians do their jobs and how they relate to their constituents. But we have seen, as, as I mentioned, in politics, there's, there, there's polarization. It's 10 or 100 times worse on social media. Is there enough training to deal with the kind of toxic environment that, that exists in social media that's part of political life? We have a project called Sambot where we measure abusive content received by candidates in Canadian elections. And in the 2021 federal election, we found hundreds of thousands of tweets that contained sexually explicit content, threats, and identity attacks. So in the face of this volume of vitriol, it's overwhelming and really difficult to, to manage how are you supposed to handle this within a professional frame? How does this affect your personal safety? We have on Humans of the House, uh, former MPs speaking directly about fear for their safety. Uh, we have Lisa Raid and Selena Caesar Chavan reflecting on, you know, concerns for the, the safety of their families as well in this role. And this is something that Canadians don't necessarily realize because when we are uh, hearing about our politicians or seeing them, it's often in a dehumanizing sense. We don't really think about their day-to-day -day and who they are. And what's important to consider within all of this bad stuff is the fact that none of our interviewees regret devoting their time to public service and that they're sharing their stories in order to equip others with the knowledge that they wish that they had. They're really invested in making things better. Hmm. But were, were you surprised by how candid these powerful people were that they were willing to, to talk about their vulnerabilities and the things that, that made them feel threatened? Absolutely. I am just so honored that our interviewees were so open and real with us. You know, the level of authenticity that you hear in their voices uh, on episodes of Humans of the House, it really gets to you. Like you really feel it. And I think it's because 
you know, they're not in the role anymore. They're able to reflect on it. They're able to look back. And there's so much hard earned knowledge there. And I think they appreciated that we were interested in hearing what they had to say and that we just asked very simple questions and simply listened. Wow, that must have been really hard. How did that make you feel? How did you handle that? What support did you have? And they would say, no one's ever asked me that before. That really matters because a lot of what they have to share, what they know can help us secure a democracy in Canada that's more representative, more efficient, and higher functioning. Who doesn't want that? Sabrina Dellen, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Sabrina Dellen is the executive director of the Samara Center for Democracy and the host of the Humans of the House podcast. Rift from the headlines. And here it is, Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three rifts linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the rifts, you can win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Skin and bones, skin and bones, skin and bones, don't you know? Skin and bones, skin and bones, skin and bones, don't you know? Edward Bear with You, Me, and Mexico, the Foo Fighters with Skin and Bones, and Gary Newman is praying to the aliens. And Barb Code of Crossfield, Alberta, I guess the headline that we're looking for, a self-described UFO expert presents what he says are two alien corpses to Mexico's Congress. Crazy. Congratulations, Barb. A day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. Don't know what the country's coming to, but in Rome do as a Rome. And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject. Send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random, and the prize is a day6 tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. From the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Annie Bender, Mickey Edwards, and Yamri Tasfu-Tedesa. Our digital producer is Paul Hentiuk. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. And I'm Brent Bambury. It's four days to the next Republican debate. Eight days to the projected shutdown of the U.S. government. And seven days till we meet again on Day 6. 
I saved money. Yeah, girl math. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.